Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, or H2, as it was also billed. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago. I tried so hard to find the theatrical version of this movie. You have no idea the trouble that I went to. Ultimately, I I couldn't watch the theatrical cut. I had to settle for the unrated one. Yes, Alan texted me and said, I'm going for the theatrical since you're watching the unrated. I said, okay, good luck. I had already watched the unrated. At that point, I have the digital file, so it was free to me to do so. And Alan had access to it also, but he decided to make it hard on himself until until he decided, oh well, and he just went ahead and watched The Unrated. So we both watched The Unrated for this, and trick-or-treat listeners, uh, you are listening to this in the middle of the week. You got an extra little bonus podcast this week. Because of the schedule, we really didn't have anywhere to fit this in on our usual Monday schedule because there are so many dang Halloween movies and we have other retrospectives that we are starting to launch. This is the tail end of this one and this is the final Halloween movie. Well, for almost 10 years, it's because we're getting this new 2018 movie that is coming out in less than a month now that that we are, this was going to be the final one though, and it was for quite a long time, and I believe it's the longest gap we've ever had since a Halloween movie. Yeah, I guess that would be true, uh, because, to see, the longest gap would have been with H2O, when that it took for that one to come out, right? I think so. Yeah, that, that one was uh, quite a while as well. Uh, I don't have, I didn't pull up the info just directly, but yes, there usually is, uh, there's been like five to six year gaps before. Right. And this one is a 10 year gap, almost. Right. So it took them, for some it was probably a signification or a sign that the Halloween franchise has officially ended after this movie and having really no clear word as to what's going to happen next with it for the yeah a number of years and once it comes on about i guess it would have been about eight ish years we finally get something that oh yeah john carpenter's coming back with a new some with something new for halloween it's supposed to reboot essentially reboot or rem- it's setting place right after the first one and not can it's uncanonizing everything else more or less in its own timeline so for a while, I'm sure some people were like, okay, well, now what's going to happen? Is it officially dead, or are we just going to continue, or is it going to be in one of those long gaps again? It's kind of in limbo for a few years. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that when this came out in 2009. I didn't see this movie in 2009 because I would have been, well, I would have been about 14 years old, so way too young to see this in theaters I don't believe I had any access to the disc. It wasn't until I was a few years older that I somehow purchased the Blu-ray. I don't know how I got away with that, but I did. (laughs) And 
that's how I saw this movie for the first time was on home video. And we will talk about at the very end of the podcast where the Halloween franchise was going to go from here. What were the rumors? What were the talks that were scheduled for a possible sequel to this movie or even different ideas? But in 2008, Malik Akkad, who is the longtime producer of these movies, he's the son of Mustafa Akkad, who was the original producer. So he announced a sequel to Rob Zombie's Halloween was in the works, but Zombie wasn't attached. Zombie felt one film was enough and the process of making it was exhausting. So apparently French filmmakers Julian Maury and Alexandre Bustillo were in negotiations to direct, but on December 15th, 2008, it was reported by Variety that Zombie had signed on to write and direct the sequel. So basically from what I remember, because I did follow the production of this movie fairly closely and what followed afterwards, from what I remember reading, Zombie was worried about his vision being compromised by someone else. And he did say, though, that if they chose to continue his universe with a third film, he wouldn't be involved. But he thought, hey, I'll give it one more go. He saw how Carpenter didn't really come back for the sequel. Yes, Carpenter did write it, but nevertheless, he just felt that uh, the vision was compromised. He didn't want that. He had something very unique in mind, and he was explicit in saying he wanted this to be a duology. He, did, he didn't felt a trilogy was necessary to complete his vision and story arc for these characters, and that's why he did make a duology, and that's what we got, and I highly doubt we will ever have a third installment following in this universe with these characters. Uh, but Zombie was given a $15 million budget, which seems to be, I guess, fairly standard for all of these Halloween movies. They're all very right. low budget. Right. And the film was released August 28th, 2009. And yeah, it looks like 2009 was a strong year for horror remakes. Uh, we got Friday the 13th, My Bloody Valentine, The Last House on the Left. And also I noticed Zombie had his animated raunch film, The Haunted World of El Superbisto, release. I remember in 2009, I also wanted to see that. For some reason, I was quite enamored with Zombie because it was really edgy and, uh, you know, scary. Ooh, it was kind of, you know, forbidden, test the limits kind of stuff. But I never saw that movie and most likely never will. Uh, the other popular horror movies of the year included Zombieland, Jennifer's Body, Drag Me to Hell, Saw 6, The Final Destination, The Human Centipede, The Uninvited, The Unborn, Orphan, Stepfather, and Splice. So as you can see, the horror genre was strong in 2009. Yeah, it was... Now, it's not really where it's at now, but it was definitely in that stage. Because I, I think The Human Centipede is one that people really remember, even if they haven't seen it. Um, yeah, I know House. Gross. I think it's now his House on the Left. That's the one with Jennifer Lawrence, right? Um, no, uh, okay. that oh, yes. no, that's House at the End of the Street, isn't it? Yeah, that's House at the End of the Street. Okay, the Last House right. on the Left. I'm pretty sure is a remake of Wes Craven's original movie. Got it. Okay, I'm no longer confused. 
<laughs> yeah. So this was a very, I would say it's a very interesting year for horror because we have a few properties that are still recognized. Like I said, Human Centipede. Uh, Saw. Saw, yeah. Saw. I guess it would be also be in its sixth iteration, which then that came back with uh, Jigsaw recently. So, yes. yeah, like you were saying, much basically just remakes and sequels to properties that have already previously existed in 2009. Yeah, and the original horror movies that we did get, I don't believe were very popular. Uh, you know, Sam Raimi had his Drag Me to Hell, Jennifer's Body, Unborn and Uninvited. I mean, some of these are PG-13, some of these are R. Most of them are forgettable. I think right. Zombieland was a fun one that people still remember and i guess saw but as you can see yeah the horror genre was strong because we were getting yeah a lot of remakes and some original content that was kind of edgy or kind of cheesy but yeah it is still in a different place than it is today but when halloween released it went on to gross 33 million domestically 6 million for a overseas and a worldwide total of 39 million, making this the seventh highest or fourth lowest, depending on how you look at it, film in the franchise. And I mean, I guess it did in a way more than double its budget. So I would say, I guess it's a small success for itself. Right. Yeah. It's nothing substantial, but for what they got, I think that it would be considered some kind of success because they did double their budget, which is usually what you at least want to get to. Right. Um, but that's the overall amount. That's not like opening weekend, which is usually want to at least meet or double your budget on opening weekend. This movie is not going to do that, I don't think. I think that they probably even knew that that was going to happen. So yeah, maybe it was pretty small success, something that um, Dimension Films made a little bit of money on. Uh, despite the fact that it wasn't wildly popular. Right. And opening weekend, it came in at number three at the box office, being beat out by The Final Destination and Inglorious Bastards. And uh, yeah, yes. it grossed $25 million less domestically than its predecessor. So people weren't very enthused. This movie was coming back, coming in at number right. three, and grossing you know i would say a substantial amount especially for this franchise less than this one and as i said it's really not very high on the totem pole and uh opening weekend i said it was number three the next weekend it went to six and in week three it was already down to 14 and it just went way down from there so that's bad so basically all of the uh those who are pretty excited to see a sequel to halloween they came back in the opening weekend, maybe the second one. After that, really nobody went to go see it. And everything else that came out after that uh, would have taken over the box office. Yeah, it's a little surprising they kept it in the theaters as long as they did. I think it was in the theaters for, I don't know, at least two months or possibly more. But, I mean, right. it, it was uh, getting near 30 by week four or five. Right. I mean, that makes a little bit of sense, though, because with a movie that doesn't make very much money, they usually try to keep it in the theater to gain some kind of revenue off of it. A good example of this is Hop. I think it was in the theater for, I want to say, close to a year what? before actually finally pulling it out 
and putting it out, or at least took it a year to go off on home media. I know that much, but it was in the theater for a long time because they wanted to milk out as much money from the theaters as they possibly could with that movie to get some kind of revenue from it. So maybe that's the same thing that happened here. I've never even heard of that movie. Yeah, probably for a good reason. (laughs) Nobody remembers it. It's, it's, kind of it's supposed to be an easter movie it came out on easter day and then the home media released the year uh the same day i bet a year later um basically just about this i hardly remember it's just about this bunny who is like the easter bunny or something hmm okay strange well speaking of unpopular only 19 percent of critics recommended this movie and to this day it holds a 4.9 on imdb so is this is this the lowest of the uh i guess 11 technically that are well yeah that's would be 10 is this the lowest the 10 that are out there right now if i'm not mistaken it is just a hair above halloween 3 season of the witch which i believe holds a 4.7 but i can look real fast so yes, it looks like this is second lowest on the totem pole as far as well, no, third lowest of the entire tin film franchise. Halloween Resurrection being the lowest, Halloween Three: Season of the Witch being second lowest, and Halloween Two: Rob Zombie Version being third lowest with a four point nine. Regardless, this is an abysmal rating. And it just goes to show you that at the time, critics said, no, stay away. Not even a quarter of them recommended it to this day. Fans of the franchise still say no. Right. And I mean, well, I guess we'll get into it in a little bit. Do we have a uh, cinema score for this one? I checked. Cinema score did uh, check on the first movie. For whatever reason, they didn't come back. Hmm. Maybe I wonder if it was a popularity thing, but I uh, interesting. I really wanted to know what would have. I really would have liked to see what the cinema score would be for this movie. Don't think it'd be very great. Yeah, I really would have been interested as well because, like we said, the first movie from audiences were like, yeah, yeah, it's it's fine. Um, I'm very curious about this one though um technically resurrection audiences liked better than rob zombies remake so it's kind of up in the air i have no idea right right well listeners before we jump into the plot we wanted to let you know we will be spoiling the unrated director's cut as i stated it was very difficult to even try and get the theatrical cut just so I could see it. Yes, listeners, uh, your best option is going to be the unrated director's cut. It's widely available. Uh, that's the one that is widely available anyway. The theatrical cut, you, stand, get, you can still get your hands on if, for whatever reason, you don't want to see Zombies Vision. And you don't want to sit through about roughly 14 to 15 extra minutes of the movie. Then you can get your hands on that. You just have to purchase it on a physical copy uh through an online retailer such as amazon but regardless the unrated director's cut is pretty much the only way to go so that's what we will be spoiling so if you don't want halloween 2 rob zombies version spoiled for you then go ahead and click pause right now 
go ahead and watch it on whatever platform you prefer. Come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. So the film opens with a definition for white horse. And that definition is linked to instinct, purity, and the drive of the physical body to release powerful and emotional forces, like rage, with ensuing chaos and destruction. Excerpt from the subconscious psychosis of dreams. It sounds a little contradictory to me, talking about purity and the drive for rage. Uh, okay. Anyways, we get this definition, and then we cut to the mid-80s, actually, when young pre-mask-wearing, well, even pre-mask-making Michael Myers, this time played by Chase Vanek, and the reason is because Dake Farrick was going through puberty, he was way too tall to reprise his role, it really wouldn't have made any sense to recast him. So we got a new kid that really doesn't look anything like the old kid. Or really act like a computer. Nope. So he is a patient at Smith's Gross Sanitarium. He's visited by his mom, Deborah, reprised by Sherry Moon Zombie, who gives him a white horse figure for a present. He recounts to her his dream of her coming to him with a white horse, taking him away from Smith's Grove. Fifteen years later, on October 31st, Halloween night, Laurie Strode, reprised by Scout Taylor Compton, is found walking the streets of Haddonfield by Sheriff Brackett, reprised by Brad Dourif. She is swiftly taken to the hospital to deal with her major injuries. Meanwhile, Michael Myers, reprised by Tyler Maine, is loaded into the back of the morgue driver's van. He's presumably dead. The two necrophile drivers crash into a cow, causing Michael to awaken. He murders the passenger left alive. Uh oh, Alan's already sighing. The cow. I remember that scene. We'll get we'll talk about it. Yeah, that poor cow. <laughs> so he murders the passenger left alive when down the road he sees his mother dressed in white with a white horse. And eventually sees himself as a child the night he wore his murderous costume. Lori is recovering in the hospital, and so is Annie. She thinks she's safe, but Michael has found her. He brutally murders nurse Octavia Daniels, played by Octavia Spencer. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> well, he murders her along with every single staff worker in the hospital. All of them. Mm -hmm. Lori escapes to the guard's shack in the parking lot, but Michael makes swift work of demolishing the hut. It seems Lori is about to perish when she awakens screaming, realizing it all to be a dream. It's been two years since that terrifying Halloween night. Her best friend, Annie Brackett, reprised by Danielle Harris, survived the night, and Lori now lives in Sheriff Brackett's new home along with his daughter, Annie. Lori has gone downhill in two years. She, well, that's an understatement. She's become a rebellious, vulgar, Charles Manson-adoring Satanist. Judging by her potty mouth and massive Manson poster above her bed, and pentagrams adorning her bathroom door all decked out in graffiti. She sees her therapist, Barbara Collier, played by Margot Kidder. Yes, the Margot Kidder from the Superman, Richard Donner, Christopher Reeve version. And she works at Uncle Meats, played by Howard Hessman, the anti-authoritarian head shop owner. She also works there with her two friends, Maya Rockwell, played by Brie Grant, and... Harley David, 
played by Angela Trimber. We also follow the further adventures of Dr. Samuel Loomis, reprised by Malcolm McDowell. Yes, he did not die in the last one. Loomis goes around doing Q&As in anticipation for his new tell-all book about Michael and his family. He acts like an egotistical rock star, treating his publicists like trash and flirting with every woman he sees. Michael is seen traversing the countryside, guised as a homeless nomad, with a really long beard. Interesting tidbit, Tyler Maine said wearing the beard made him made wearing the mask more comfortable. Hmm. Would have ever guessed that. I know. It seems not true, but it is. He goes around slicing up hicks and eating dogs. By the way, when Michael eats a dog, Lori gets sick. Lori's mental state seems to be eroding. She's having hallucinatory, seizure-inducing... Ooh, that's a tongue twister. Seizure-inducing visions of murdering Annie in the same way that Michael murdered his stepfather. She's even wearing the same outfit. Michael is having visions of him and his younger self, meeting their mom dressed in black, with a black cross in the room for whatever reason. Cut to Michael is a crucified skeleton, and Lori lays Snow White style on a table where pumpkin people royalty dine while it snows. Bizarre to say the least. I wish you guys could see Alan's face right now. I remember this scene, and I'm just like, ah. (laughs) To make matters worse, Loomis' new book drops, which prompts an assassination attempt from Kyle Vanderklok, played by Robert Curtis Brown, the father of the deceased Linda from the previous film. And Lori learns the horrifying truth that she is the sister of Michael Myers, her birth name being Angel. These three storylines converge with Michael murdering all of Lori's friends, including Annie in a quite emotional scene. Lori is taken hostage by Michael, young Michael, and their mother who forces Lori to say, I love you, mommy, over and over. Loomis comes to the shack where Lori is hostage in order to help. He tells Lori she is merely hallucinating. There's no one except the older Michael, who then throws Loomis through the wall, rips off his mask, and yells, die, as he attempts to murder Loomis, but Michael is shot repeatedly. Lori exits the shack, picks up Michael's knife, stands over Loomis, and is shot herself. A very creepy song plays as we get to a slow zoom of a pure white hallway where Lori is sitting at the edge of a bed, touting a sinister smile, as she sees her mother approaching with a white horse as credits roll. Oh, boy. So, can we say this is probably the craziest Halloween yet? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, it's definitely one that has a quite the dynamic range compared to, I guess, the others, every single one of them. Yeah, it just goes places with its visual style, with its visions and whatnot i understand this is zombies vision needless to say from the plot description i just read this is really different from the previous movie which was uh more so i guess grounded remake slash reimagining even though it was quite over the top with its usage of violence and gore this one is still I would say more so over the top with that, but just with what happens, it's crazy. Yeah, um, that's, okay, Rob Zombie, 
from what we've seen so far, these two movies, uh, he is usually pretty over the top with when it comes to at least horror. I really don't know about his other movies except for these two Halloween ones. But yeah, he usually is pretty over the top with his films. He takes it, at least with the first one, he tried to ground it in some kind of realism, but everything in that realism was all over the top, and so it kind of pulled it out of that. This one tries to keep some kind of realism, but everything is at times even worse when it comes to being over the top than the first one. And it makes this movie really hard, at least in my own opinion, to get into because every there's no ground to this movie. It all just kind of happens. And it makes it very hard to A, get into it, and B, at times understand what's even going on. And about... I'm trying to think of the scene that broke me because there were a couple of scenes where that I, oh, I think I know what it was. I think it was when the horse, the white horse and mom showed up for the first time. That would have been the scene where I was just like, okay, all right. Yeah. A lot of reviewers had a big issue with that. They called it silly. They called it pretentious. They called it both pretentiously silly. I honestly don't really know what to make of it because it's just so out of left field and I feel like we're not given very much definitive answers as to really how these things are occurring. Is this like some real supernatural occurrence or is it because Michael and Lori somehow share the same insanity and they have these there's some kind of um, evil link i don't know i i I, even this isn't very original because this idea was introduced in the end of well i guess it's a mild spoiler but whatever nobody cares of halloween 4 with danielle harris being the niece of michael and she turns evil and then in halloween 5 we learn they have this psychic link so rob zombie seems like he is trying to be original here but it's not because we've already had these ideas not necessarily fleshed out in this way, but we've already had them before. I have always struggled with really what to make of this whole white horse thing. They shoehorn in here, honestly, and just shove in our faces constantly. Starting with the definition, starting with, oh, okay, we're going to retcon the first one and show that Michael's mom brought him a white horse and he had a dream that she was dressed like this white ghost and she'd come take him home. And what do you know, that's how the movie ends, except it's Laurie in the sanitarium. I still don't even know if that's a real thing or if that's in her mind and she's actually dead. I feel like Zombie makes all of this stuff too ambiguous for me to latch on to. See, I actually kind of feel the exact opposite. Because I feel like Zombie pushes this so hard that it become, it's it gets to a point where it's just like, okay, stop. I, I get it, you know, because, okay, at one point in the movie, there is, Loomis has, like, I guess this discussion, uh, I guess he comes up and has, like, this uh, convention or whatever, and a bunch of reporters are there, and they're asking him questions. I guess maybe be a press, uh, press release or whatever. Anyways, one of the things that's brought up is the quote-unquote Oedipus complex, where M- Michael has this attraction to his mother and the white horse symbolizes and white horse and his mom kind of symbolize his motivation to 
more or less follow whatever his mother is saying. Um, I think, and I think what this movie is trying to get into is Michael's mind more than any other movie that we've seen so far. But it does it in such a way where it just doesn't make any sense artistically because we have this white horse, which is always kind of meant, well, usually a white horse or a woman dressed in white with some kind of background, uh, with some kind of backlight behind her. This more angelic glow is usually meant to symbolize goodness or uh, pure good or I guess even an angel or something like that, hope, stuff like that. This movie kind of takes it and warps it into more of Michael's, I guess maybe even what Michael feels is right or what Michael feels he must do, more or less destiny or something like that. It doesn't make any sense. It kind of takes the usual way of presenting an idea like this and then kind of flips it on his head. Uh, I can't, and don't get me wrong, this can work, but... Because this is a Halloween movie, it tries to half be your typical horror film and then half try to be this somewhat art house kind of thing, and it doesn't work. It There is a stark contrast between Michael's visions and, I guess, towards the end, Laurie's visions and uh, the reality that's happening with Laurie before the ending, which I wouldn't even say the ending is just a vision in her own mind because every other time we see this white horse, it's always been a vision of some kind. And so that's kind of what I'm getting out of it. It's really stupid. Uh, I really don't like it, but I, I think that that's, I think it's what Zombie was going for at the very least. The in the disconnect coming from this movie, coming well coming from Halloween to this movie, I would feel as a viewer, I would feel betrayed in a way because. It's just going to such abstractions and such places that were never even hinted at or set up, which does make this feel like a retcon to me. And we even begin with a retcon, which I don't really like, which is so on the nose. And like Alan mentioned earlier, the Oedipus complex, so on the nose that it's just blatantly spelled out there for you. And yeah, I mean, after this retcon, Zombie does kind of show us this more grounded Halloween, which is a bait and switch, because he wants us to get into the movie here by showing he is kind of redoing um, Halloween 2 in a way, because it does pick up directly after Lori has shot Michael. Somehow she is like physically so harmed and messed up i i didn't think judging from what happened in the end of halloween one she would need all of this reconstructive surgery i mean we get a fairly graphic um hospital uh operational scene right. it just felt like really she's that like that bad right and like i can understand that she's emotionally shook from what happened with michael Right. I can see that. But yeah, from the end of one and kind of what we see when she's walking down the road and a cop stops her in this really funny line where it's like, stop, stop, Lori, stop. What happened? You, you're okay. You're okay. It's fine. Um, she doesn't look, yeah, like she needs this kind of surgery, but I guess she does. I can get the broken leg. I think she heard it in the last one. But there's like sure. a lot of stitching going on. All kind of, it, it, The scene goes, like, uh, I can see why the scene is here. 
and it's fine that it's here, but it goes on for much longer than it really needs to. It, obviously, it's meant to gross out the audience um, with this kind of imagery. That's what it's there for. I don't see the reason why it needs to be this long, though. I, it's fine to set up the tension and how uh, gory this movie's going to end up being. But this way it goes on for just a bit too long and it just kind of feels like we're, he's really grasping at straws. Like anything he can get his hands on that'll gross you out, he'll do it. Which yep. kind of makes for a very abstract movie when you really when you really look at it from a macro level. This movie does suffer from elongated sequences. There are just block sequences you can point to where it's like, okay, this is what this entire little 15 minute chunk is going to focus on oh, yeah yeah this is what this is going to focus on and eventually it becomes to be too much i would even say non-storytelling because it at a certain point we stop getting any kind of narrative and it's just like it lingers in certain areas i would say the uh, halloween bash is the longest one where Lori and her friends all hang out. That scene took forever. Yeah, there are plenty of scenes where things just happen, and there really is no plot thread in them. The Yeah, that Halloween party scene is definitely the worst out of really any other scene in this movie because it just goes on forever, and there is no direction to it. It just kind of... Most of this movie feels pretty aimless. In fact, for most of the second act, we're still stuck in setup, it feels like. And so up until maybe even the Halloween scene, kind of, things just kind of happen and we're going different places and all sorts of stuff. It doesn't really all connect to the same plot. It just is there. And then we see Michael kill a bunch of people because we spend always spend so much time with these people like the Hicks or basically any other time that we cut to some random person, Michael shows up. It, there are so many long extended sequences that just really could have been shortened up and really could have helped this movie's pacing a bit more had they done that, I feel. it. A lot of it feels pretty unneeded when you really get down to it. I know there are a few director's cuts where the director will actually take a few scenes out and tighten it up just a bit. This isn't one of them. 15 minutes for a director's cut is a substantial amount of time. Some right. extended cuts, you only get just a few minutes or even alternate shots that don't even really do anything for it. But this one, mostly, it doesn't add any sex or gore. It mostly just focuses on Lori's character and how she's portrayed. Apparently, in the theatrical cut, we see her go into this downward spiral but in this she's already really messed up and things go from bad to worse in this version the leap that we have to uh just accept i guess from who laurie was in the first one to who laurie is in this one i can't accept it i can't accept that somebody just because they went through a yeah it was extremely traumatic but that means they have a giant Charles Manson poster over their bed and are super trashy and just a really bad person. And they draw pentagrams in their bathroom. And I, I just can't accept this foul mouth Lori at all. I don't like it. Yeah, this is really strange. Um, okay. I, I can understand that she's, once again, emotionally shook from what happened with Michael and that her character is much different from the last movie than this week. That's, that's fine. 
I think that the downward spiral that we would have saw in the theatrical version would have been the best way to go about this. That way it's not such a stark contrast between what ha- the events that happened in the first one and the events that happened in the second one. Because they're, uh, they're direct sequels with this one taking place a couple years after what had happened. The, pr- the problem is, yeah, her character is so different from the last one with no real leeway or any kind of setup to get us into this before we realize before it's actually shown that she is that she has fallen um, from her goodness in the first one. And I don't mind that she's not good necessarily anymore that she used to be. The, the problem is, I, I think this kind of goes for really the whole movie in general. There is no good person in this movie and every good person that does come out of it. I, I guess the dad of whatever her name is, uh, he's really the only good person per se in this movie. And he has such a minor right. role. And towards the end, he kind of goes nuts and he ends up because of the death of his daughter, he turns into this bad person. It makes it hard to relate to this movie on any kind of level because everybody is portrayed as being bad. They're not, nobody's good in this movie, which is once again, it could possibly work, but for a movie that for a franchise that's built on pure good versus pure evil, you need that pure good to be there. That doesn't exist in this movie like anywhere. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It really doesn't. And once again, this just seems to be zombie style where he loves to focus on the evil and the trashy and what's just bad. And let's just really spend a lot of time with it and show how, yeah, I'm sure people would be changed through these traumatic situations, but people are hyperly drastically changed. And this is kind of a hyper postmodern movie where it's not like people's ethics are kind of in the gray area. No, everybody is just just nobody we can really root for. Uh, nobody that's just uh, we can be even relate to, like Alan said. And I do feel like the first movie was quite nihilistic with just this very bleak outlook of dehumanization and... Yeah, it just all comes crashing down in the end. And I would say Zombie amps it up further with this one, with this nihilistic vision of, regardless, everybody's going to be destroyed, and nothing good is going to come out of this, and we're going to smile at the end with how destructive it all is. And I gotta say, that just really doesn't make for uh, good storytelling, because we have to have some kind of uh, a balance or something to latch onto that uh, will make us think and question why these characters got to this point. Why does it end this way? But we really don't get any of that because it's like, oh, well, everybody is just... Uh, I mean, Dr. Loomis's character, I'm, su- I'm even surprised he goes... You know, I mean, I guess he wasn't a great person in the first one, but he was trying his best. And we get this really on the nose scene where he said, that's the old Loomis. I'm the new Loomis. And it's like, well, yeah, clearly, because now he's a horrible person. Right. And and that's kind of the biggest issue is that there's nobody to root for in this movie. Everyone. And okay, had this movie taken everyone and or maybe even just Loomis, if they'd taken Loomis and shown that, yes, he's fallen since he's not as good per se as he used to be he's kind of he's been corrupted by popularity and money and then showed him in the end 
having to turn and help out Lori in a more organic way, then we would have got yeah. we would have been able to show that just because something bad happened to somebody doesn't mean that something good can't come out of it, right? That would have made a little bit more sense. We would have had that still had some in some in some fashion that good versus evil complex that we've had in every other movie other than other than this one really, but we never get that and. Yes, Loomis does change in the end, but there's no reason for it. There's no reason for it to happen. It doesn't, it, it's a stark change. It's a complete 180 turn on a dime that he goes from this really stingy person to having such grace to go and save, uh, go and save Lori once more out of nowhere it doesn't and i point to Loomis because he's really the only character that i can think of that ever actually goes through this change other than once again the dad who is kind of like the opposite where he's pretty much fine up until whenever his daughter dies it just once again it, it, there's no one to latch on to there's no one to root for in this movie so you're just kind of watching things happen and you get nothing out of it there's no character that i felt was ever worth spending time with because they're all more or less just bad in general. Yeah, I would have, I guess I would have liked a little bit more time with Brad Dourif's character. Um, I do like him a lot as Sheriff Brackett, but yeah, he has no purpose in this movie. He really doesn't do any, does no mentoring. Clearly he brought Lori into his home. He's dealing with two uh, pretty stressed out young ladies and they don't seem to be trying to rectify any type of situation aside from Lori going to therapy which she does nothing but yell at her therapist in a comical way almost yeah. and there's a massive uh, Rorschach ink blot of you guessed it a white horse perfect um coincidence I don't know no it's not yeah, um, it's totally a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but so after we get this pseudo remake, which I guess isn't half bad. I mean, what do you think of like this first 15 minutes where Zombie gives his own little mini remake before showing, hey, we're doing something different? Right. I was actually really curious to see if the whole movie was going to set place in this hospital, just like two. And I was a bit concerned, which is still a criticism, because it goes from zero to 100 in like 0. 0.2 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Yeah, it and it, it before really any lead in it just goes for it, and so it it's kind of a jar, it's kind of a jarring experience. But uh, yeah, at first I was like, okay, well I can. I'm curious to see where this goes. I wanted to see what Zombie's going to do from the second one. The one thing I was really concerned with is that he's going to take as much from one with his first movie and take as much as two from this one uh, as much as the other one. I was wondering if that was going to happen. Turns out uh, this is just a dream. Yeah, that's usually not the best way to start off a movie, or end one for that matter. No, uh, it was at this point, if it wasn't broken already, this was, the, this was the scene that broke me completely, I think. I remember running in my notes, I paused it when, it when she woke up, and I'm just like, oh movie, you shouldn't have done that. That was a, that was a bad idea. Yeah, it's the, so, uh, I think it's, you know, a fairly decent reimagining for the 21st century here i'm into it and i guess i'm into how it goes from zero to a hundred because the second movie was so slowly building that there wasn't a whole lot of excitement with it i feel and this movie uh, zombie puts a climax at the beginning 
which is kind of unique. Some of the James Bond movies have put their best scenes with their best foot forward right there in the beginning, and we don't ever get anything as exciting to top that. And so, yeah, I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. Zombie's putting a climax at the beginning. He jumped right in with the action. This is unlike any other Halloween movies. I'm excited to see how Laurie's going to get out of this situation. I remember this was a big scene they touted in the promotional material. And I know a lot of people were disappointed when it's just a dream. And I remember the first time I watched it, I was so disappointed because I'm thinking, how is she going to get out of this? The movie's already jumped in to the action, you know, 10, 15 minutes in. That's uh, kind of unique. And then he undoes all of this and shows that was just a dream. I'm not going to do that movie. I'm going to be doing something completely different. And we basically get three storylines that converge in an extremely, uh, I don't know, shoe. everything is shoehorned in here, how it's so perfect. I'm going to make the case that Loomis' storyline shouldn't even be in this movie. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I mean, I wouldn't mind showing Loomis the symbol technically for pure good being the one that's also been having fallen from where he was before and then having building him back up to where to back where he was originally. I would like to see that, but we never really get that. Uh yeah, it mm, he, this storyline with Loomis being stingy and popularity and money has taken him over all sorts of like that. It's is not good. It really doesn't do much for the movie except to show that, oh, Loomis and everyone has fallen. Nobody is as good as they used to be. Well, and I'm going to even further go and make the case that Michael shouldn't be in this movie until maybe the very end. I think that actually would have been more effective if this whole movie, they're wondering, is he still alive? You know, maybe we, she has these visions of things happening, but no, she can't substantiate it in any way until the very end when it comes out. Yeah, he's here. And then it all just goes, you know, bananas from there. But instead, we just get Michael as this vagabond, homeless traveler with he's mostly maskless most of the movie, which I'd say is a gutsy move because we've yeah. never seen this before. Yeah. It's odd. Um, we do see his face in many shots, which is, I remember the first time I saw it, I was really surprised because that's, you just don't do that. <laughs> you just right. don't show Michael without his mask like that. I mean, granted, we did see his face briefly in the very first movie, but We also I, saw it again in one of the other movies, too, when, uh, when he takes, I think it was Laurie. Uh, takes her upstairs into the attic and was going to basically kill her in the child's coffin. He does take off his mask there for a brief moment, but we never do see the actual face. Yes, that was Halloween 5. Right, that's it. Um, Yeah, I just, I'm going to say that I think Michael's scenes don't really work in this movie because oh, no. once again, what is the point of any of this except to see his creepy mom walk around he just kills homeless people and kills uh stripper people uh i i guess i can understand why he comes to this uh red rabbit place because it's where his mom used to work 
and maybe he wants to get revenge on those people. But uh, regardless, I, I just, it doesn't work. Yeah, his scenes are weird because they come up at just random points in the movie. Um, and they're usually accompanied by the mother, the white mother and the white horse, uh, which we've kind of already pointed out is a stark contrast to whatever else is in this movie. Yeah, his scenes don't really make much sense to me. They, it, it feels more like an obligation to have him in a Halloween movie than anything else. Going back to what you were saying, what could have worked is to have him, does to save him till the end of the movie. I think that that maybe even playing a lot more with this psychological aspect and showing how Michael is really, at least at the very least, really messed up Lori and how she maybe still believes that she's alive and having all these visions about him. I could see where that could work. And then having Michael come at the very end and turns out he's actually somewhat maybe even real, but then keep maybe keeping that ambiguous, that possibly could have worked, but they don't do that, obviously. It, yeah, it really makes me wonder... It really puts Michael's character into question as to, okay, this is he's in this movie, but why does he need to be? Even though this movie is about Halloween and Michael Myers is more or less the villain of every other every movie, except for three, uh, he's this is probably the one where he does the absolute least up until, I guess, the very end. Uh, and even then, kind of. It, it makes... It, it's almost like a worthless it's it's a it's a really bad way of using your villain okay so one of i guess let me say one of the positives of this movie is i remember always liking kind of the setting of the movie the barn house she well it's not a barn house i guess i meant to say a farmhouse where she lives kind of this small town this very autumn feel to all of it um, now rewatching it, I don't think it's as good as I used to think it was, but nevertheless, I think this kind of autumny, Octobery, small townish vibe is captured fairly well. So I guess that's one of the positives I'll give to this movie. I mean, so what did you think of kind of the visual setting of the movie? Right. Uh, does this take place in Haddonfield? It does actually. Okay. Cause I was, it never came up with, I don't. I remember coming up with the Haddonfield location tag anywhere. Uh, the um, only time we see it is when Michael is walking there and he walks past the Haddonfield, welcome to Haddonfield sign. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. My only, I guess I, it is kind of nice to have the main household being in kind of like this middle of the field um, kind of a thing. We never really got that. It's always been kind of in the middle of the, like all the suburbs or every other house is at uh, in the neighborhood, right. neighborhood complex. So it is not kind of like a nice change of pace that it's now Lori's residing in this, essentially in solitude. I mean, it kind of uh, off in this uh, on this farm, more or less. So it's kind of nice. It really does kind of goes. It really does go to show how lonely and distant she and her friend are. But once again, this small town vibe has already been done many times before in this franchise. Uh, it's it's fine. I I I, do, I will give it to you. It is something nice to have. That's a bit different. That I think actually kind of works is to have her in this house, kind of secluded. At the same time, it, it it's. It's something that's hard for me to, I guess, show that it is something good because there is so much that overshadows that that is not very good. Yeah, that's completely understandable. Also, the grossly 
I would say overused F word in this movie is quite ridiculous how we will just have one character talking and they will say it probably at least five times within one sentence. Yeah. Once again, um, Zombie really likes to just... He really tries to utilize the R rating as much as he possibly can. Of course, this one's unrated, so it's a bit different. Um, But he really tries to push it as far as he can before the MPAA moves it up one more level. I I guess that's just his ethos when it comes to crafting a film. So I guess so. To me, it just shows poor writing that most of the time he can't think of any other expressiveness for the character other than to just express themselves through anger and vulgar language and just cussing each other out. Right. Uh, well, that, that brings building. up one of the biggest issues I have with this movie, too, is when it comes to anger. This movie is freaking bipolar because, <laughs> okay, because there are so many scenes. I think the bit, the best example I can give off the top of my head is when Lori runs away and goes to her coworker's house and she begins like, sobbing on the couch about how she found out oh no i am the daughter oh no yeah i'm the sister yep. of michael myers and then literally and of course her two co-workers that are come for her it cuts to a little bit farther into the future and she's totally fine and she wants to go party and she's ha- she's drunk and all sorts of stuff this happens more than once in this movie which is okay that's part one of it the other part of it is there is so much fighting in this movie that it gets to a point where it's just, it once again becomes hard to follow because a scene will begin and then out of nowhere, the dialogue will shift and the next thing you know, they're yelling at each other. This happens more than one time with Lori and her friend that she lives with. And Lori and her, psycho- and her I guess, uh, therapist, almost every scene has something like this in it where somebody gets mad at somebody else and they yell at that person seemingly for no reason. It doesn't really further the plot. It gets so it gets so bad that it, once again it just kind of hammers in the fact that nobody's really good here. It gets so bad that it's just like okay, this has become unrealistic, and it's it's just it, honestly in the grand scheme of things, it's just stupid because none of these conversations ever go anywhere in the grand scheme of the whole movie. Right, none of these conversations amount to anything. She does have these bipolar mood swings that are always played out with other people. There's never really any introspection. I I can't even call her visions introspection because it's it's like she has no control over any of these things. Some higher power that, once again, I struggle to realize what is exactly going on here. Uh, that it's it seems to be controlling her somehow. Her and Michael are connected. Um, yeah, I guess I forgot that her and Michael were related i just assumed because it is revealed in the first movie it wasn't revealed in the original i just thought she knew that i guess but then she doesn't and we learn her name is angel okay good and yeah you're right it's the very cliche time of in the movies something bad will happen to a character to the point where they just um They want to numb their feelings through going to a party, through alcohol, through sex. And this is so cliche. This is what she does. She said, I don't care anymore. I want to go have fun and party. And gosh, I that party scene was ridiculous. Uh, I'll be honest. I just skipped ahead a bit through it because after the fifth 
uh, song of these weird band and their uh, topless dancers. <laughs> yeah. I I was just like, really, the scene is going nowhere. And then what uh, really ruined it for me is Michael kills her friend because that's what he did in the first one. Yeah, okay, that brings up another question of mine. How does Michael know where to go in this movie? He kind of, like, I can understand a few places, but he somehow comes to this party, kills one of the one of her co-workers, and then walks away. For what reason, exactly? I don't think it's ever really explained why he did this. I maybe even harkening back to the original where Michael more or less has always killed because a couple is about to engage or has engaged in sexual activity. And so that's what he's doing here. The problem is that makes no sense for this movie because once again, we've stripped away that characterization of Michael where he will kill based on somebody trying to, or people trying to engage in sexual activity, which has been a staple for the series. They've completely axed that, except for this one scene, I guess. Anyways, it it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, he just kind of shows up in random places once again, like we've like we've criticized before in previous movies, which makes no sense at all. Uh, it, this scene, I think, is only here just to pad out the movie because it could have been two, two minutes long and had the exact same effect that it has here, but instead they pad it out to more like ten or fifteen minutes. And it has it loses its, it loses everything that it is trying to portray. I think what is even uh, more strange is the inclusion of Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> Alan just freaked out. <laughs> when I got to this scene, I paused the movie and walked away. Oh, and I said, "I never in all my years would I ever have thought." Or even dreamed of Weird Al Yankovic being in a Halloween movie directed by Rob Zombie. Why? Why is... Oh. Yeah, it is really just out of left field. This is the further unnecessary side plot of Sam Loomis, who... Weird Al makes a funny joke, which I mean, I was like, yeah, that's a good one. And then Loomis is so humiliated. But why? See, this is just more of this unnecessary detours that we keep taking. And everything is shoehorned in there where the new book comes out and the mom says, look, he's profiting off our misery. You should go kill him. It's like, really? And you're telling me this is the first time a book has been written about Michael Myers? Right. Uh, right. No. I don't know. I just... Once again, what is this movie doing? What are the what's the purpose of the inclusion for these scenes? It's just a unnecessary detour. It I really is. And having the inclusion of Weird Al is weird. Extremely bizarre. And I really would like to say that it's part of those scenes where Michael is kind of envisioning things of the <laughs> white horse and his mom. <laughs> It's not. It's a real scene that takes place in some kind of reality, wherever this movie's at. I will never get over the fact that Weird Al is in this movie. It, it's half it's funny because it makes absolutely no sense that he's here, but at the same time, it serves absolutely no purpose except to show that Loomis, or I guess reinforce the idea that Loomis really is very stingy and 
self-conscious about his public character. Oh, movie. You shouldn't have done that movie. Okay, so the only positive side I can see to Loomis' storyline is when Linda's dad, Linda, who was one of Lori's best friends, she was murdered in the first movie by Michael. He comes to Loomis and says, you're profiting off of my daughter's murder off of this tragic event. You're getting rich and, you know, being a fat cat while I suffer with the loss of my daughter. And he pulls out a gun, which surprised me. And I thought, okay, this is a smart inclusion because it, A, humanizes uh, Linda's death, which was uh, quite dehumanized as she died completely naked. And well, that, and we also expressed that it was completely useless in the in the movie itself because it just it had no reason to be there. Right, exactly. Um, so it was just more so exploitative for no reason except possibly to amp everything up and feed the uh, unhealthy drive of probably just young men who want to see more of this on screen. But this was a humanizing moment, so I'm kind of surprised because. This, I would say, in most ways is more dehumanizing than the previous film because of how people are just sliced up in extremely gory detail and how it lingers on those scenes and just almost makes them into props to be destroyed. But like I said, this is a humanizing sequence that I felt was fairly effective. And once again, showing Michael without his mask, uh, which... Uh, I guess doesn't really make sense to me because he wouldn't even when he was a kid he wouldn't even let his mom see him without his mask eventually but now he loves to wear his mask even when he he's very inconsistent with when he does and doesn't wear it when he is killing people um okay the other scene that I feel is very effective with humanization Alan you may disagree with me but it is during Annie's death scene where we don't even see it at first. It's all heard um, in the background. I was like, wow, that's surprising restraint. Come to find out, yeah, we do see a bit of it, but not as much as we could have. And we see the unbelievably bloody aftermath. But what really gets me is when Sheriff Brackett comes to his daughter and uh, we get these like home movie clips played over. Regardless, it's an odd choice, but one that I thought was fairly effective because that's what he's thinking of. He's thinking of his innocent girl who, yeah, she's not so innocent anymore and nobody is, but he's remembering her how she was, his little girl, she was innocent. It's extremely horrifying to see, uh, for a father to see a daughter um, murdered and especially in such a way. So I was like, wow, zombies actually bring some emotion, some restraint, and trying to pull out our heartstrings here. And for me, it worked. Uh, well, I can tell you I feel essentially the complete opposite. I wondered that if scene. you did. Yeah. Um, I'll say this. When he runs into the room and screams, I laughed out loud. Wow. Somebody's, um, somebody's a little callous. Yes. Well, Goodness. let me explain. <laughs> well, okay. For one, we never really got any development with him. So it just really makes little sense as to why they're playing the home clips over his grief. But I think the part that really got me is when he's like, oh, no, Annie. And 
does that. Honestly, it's that really terrible reaction. That was yeah. what lost me. And to be completely honest with you, this this scene is what made me stick around to see you. Okay, where else is this movie going to go? Hmm. Because I found it to be honestly rather hilarious with its execution. I understand what they're going for, but both the sheriff and his daughter had very little character to them, so it didn't have much of an impact on me. And I would agree, I didn't really have an attachment to either character. It's the very first time, though, I will say this, it's the very first time in any Halloween movie we have seen a loved one's reaction to their uh, significant other, whether that be a child or... uh, I don't know. In some capacity, we've never we've seen these people just always get murdered and they're mostly dehumanized in that way. And we've never seen their aftermath, even in Halloween, Two, And Sheriff Brackett learns it's his daughter and we don't really get anything of it. I'm just saying in a movie that is extremely dehumanizing, I appreciate Zombie's attempt at bringing some humanization to seeing the aftermath of that because we've never got that before. And it's surprising to do it in a movie that mostly does the opposite. I can understand why you feel that way, though, because his acting isn't very good. And some of the line delivery and just lines in general aren't very good. I guess I would just say I was more so moved by, wow, we're we're actually going there. We're actually seeing because most of the time people are murdered and they're like, oh, that's too bad. But no, right. you, you know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I think the problem for me is that Zombie doesn't r- really... He doesn't do a very good job at portraying more of this kind of grief. He it, And I think that's also probably also due to the acting of Sheriff Brackett. Because his acting isn't really all that great, especially in this scene. And so when it comes up, it whatever reality that was there that could have been very effective for me just was kind of thrown out the window. Because it isn't very believable when it comes to portraying grief in this way, had he done it in a better way, maybe even padded out the scene, it maybe would have caused a different reaction in me. But because it is the way that it is, I found it to be have a complete opposite effect where it, you know, it's just, it ends up being funny to me instead of being something that is tragic and meaningful. Yeah, it, it is out of left field because we've never had any character development between them whatsoever. They've never shared a moment. The only conversation I can recall them sharing is talking about whole grain pizza crust. Right, which he yells at him for not getting too. Yeah, dang, he can't even have a pizza without messing up everything. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and to be and to be fair, I think that the sheriff is very a very interesting character because he's in, he's in a very interesting situation being... A, the sheriff of Haddonfield, and B, having to live with two kids who have been mentally scarred for the rest of their lives by by Michael Myers, but we don't do anything with it. It's a very interesting plot, uh, very interesting character trait, but they don't expound on it. I think that would have made a very ef- more effective movie had they done so to dive into the psychology of this man instead of somebody else or Laurie, for, for that matter, instead of instead of that, maybe focus more on the sheriff's character and how he feels and how he reacts and how he deals with the situation that he's in. We don't get that, which is so unfortunate that they missed that because I think that would have been very interesting. Yes, I completely agree with that. It is a major missed opportunity. So at the very end here, we get this climax, which I found to be, well, very anticlimactic, actually. 
Loomis has this redemption, okay? He has this change of heart, which all we know is he says, Sheriff, I owe you this. I don't know why he does. I this None of this makes any sense. Uh, also, throughout the movie, we get some horrible slow motion and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's bad. It seems to be without rhyme or reason, and um, the camera work decides to change, I would even say. Uh, about halfway through this movie, when Michael starts grabbing people, when he grabs people, it's like he's grabbing the cameraman because the camera jerks and kind of flails around for a bit. I didn't like it. Um, I guess these movies are shot fine um it's all just kind of mediocre muted color palette and i will say this compared to the first one in terms of cinematography i think this one is a bit better uh and at least portraying the world that it's in it's not anything great but i think it is better than the first one that rob zombie made yeah I, i can see that um, the one thing I I don't like though is how zombie seems to always shoot dialogue. Is there always has to be some kind of slow rock playing in the background? Yeah. In almost every scene, it feels like when people are talking, and it is kind of this frenetic um, bit of dialogue with kind of quick cuts between each person. I just I don't like how that feels at all. I just don't like how these dialogue scenes are shot. And I don't like how Michael grabs people, but coming back to the end here, Loomis, even though he runs in there, he accomplishes nothing, Uh, Right. which uh, he doesn't get through to anybody. He doesn't reconcile with anyone. He basically just says, Laurie, stop it, like yells at her to stop it and doesn't even try to calm her down. And... Then he just gets thrown through a wall and nearly dies. I don't know if his death is definitive or not. Yeah, at least not in this cut. I don't think it's really ever shown if he really truly died or didn't die. It doesn't. There, There's just so much wrong with this ending here where it's trying to be incredibly intense, but it's not. I can't believe Michael rips off his mask and yells, die. Yeah. Oh, that was once again hammering into the fact that we've completely were I'd say we've completely destroyed Michael's character and what he was built up to ever be in all of these movies. It's just completely ripped to shreds. And that I'll even say just this one scene alone have it has it not already been so in the previous scenes. Because we do see him once or twice without his mask. But this is the scene where he has his mask off, yells die, and attacks Loomis. Uh uh so frustrating and i guess just because Lori picks up the knife she gets shot as well i think zombie wants it to be ambiguous whether she dies or not i don't know but we get this really bizarre uh she gets shot and then we get three still images of her collapsing with a freeze frame a slow zoom and then it fades into her in this white hallway with a really creepy uh rendition of the song love hurts which if i'm not mistaken we heard in the first movie i don't remember yes this made me laugh once the song started playing i'm just like oh here we go (laughs) and it it's it so doesn't fit this movie like the lyrics i guess work for the context 
but the fact that we switch to a song that is performed by somebody and carry out essentially the rest of the movie with this song, it it's completely out of left field. It's outside of uh, Zombie's aesthetic for this movie. It made me laugh because it's trying to evoke some kind of emotion, but doesn't really know how to do it very well. Same time, same thing with uh, Sheriff Brackett when he finds his daughter dead. It has an angelic voice that comes over, and this music takes over the scene. It, it both of these scenes for me just really didn't work. This one especially. This one especially. I can't make heads or tails of it. Honestly, I have never been able to discern whether uh, Lori is alive and she has been put in a sanitarium and her mind has now been purified for pure evil's sake and now she is able to clearly we're this is a callback to in the beginning when michael said i had a dream you're coming down to me from the hallway with a white horse so Lori has it at the very end regardless and especially if you watch the theatrical cut Lori comes out of the hut because michael was thrown well loomis was stabbed a bunch he was thrown onto some spikes and then Lori comes out wearing michael's mask and correct me if I'm wrong, but she isn't shot. It just fades to her sitting on the bed. Essentially, yeah. Uh, there, she isn't really shot. I, I think, yeah, I, I don't remember her ever being shot. It, she just sits there with the mask on and pulls off the mask with the knife. And that's it. It fades to the her being in this white hallway. And then she looks up, she's the mom, like the, like the ending here, the unready cut. And then she smiles and then that's it. Well, and this also, so when we see Michael get shot in a hail of gunfire, that's the end of Halloween 4. Right. Yeah. And then when Laurie is the new Michael, the end of Halloween 4. I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, not very original, and I, um, I don't know. I don't like this end scene at all. I don't like this movie at all. It gives me this kind of icky feeling that I kind of watched this, you know, empty barrel of nothing. And all I got was uh, my ears and eyes assaulted by gratuitous language and violence that really serve no purpose. And yep, that's it. The movie's done. There's felt to be no purpose. Right. And I I would go as far as to say that I think... Lori is supposed to be the next quote unquote Michael Myers. Yeah. Uh and whether or not she's dead or alive makes it makes no difference here nor there because she's going to fulfill fulfill what Michael began. As far as I'm aware, I don't think there's anything else that this movie would have done, which makes no sense because the the last few movies have always had Michael survive anything that he's been put through, but whatever, this is a new franchise, or I guess a reboot, so fine. Yeah. I this movie is oof. This ending is uh it's just it's a ball of frustration all the way around. Tell me the credits aren't demented as we see pictures of his all of his victims. Like I'm not gonna sit there and look at that. Yeah, and then the tone completely shifts from having the song that we began with you see I'm ready to cut, and then shifts once the song is over to the Halloween theme, yeah. which correct me if I'm wrong, that is never played once in this movie except for the credits. Yeah, that's the only time. This is the first time we hear it. Right. Which is even made funnier because they 
credit John Carpenter and his composition for the score before the score actually plays in the credits. Oh, weird. Yeah, I noticed that because I saw it come up. I was like, wait, we never, I don't think we ever saw the song play or heard heard the song play at all in this movie. And then about a minute after that, or however long it was, the song, the theme begins playing. That I just thought that was very interesting that they chose to remove themselves for the most part away from this main theme and have, I guess, just an original score for the most part Which is uh, weak. for this movie. Yeah, it's not very good. It, it makes no impression. You can barely hear it. The only time I made a note on it was in the very beginning when Laurie is running in the rain from Michael as he's chasing her with an axe. I thought, oh, yeah, that's kind of good. I can barely hear it, though. And that's the only time there is, like, really even a score, I feel like. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Rob Zolo... Rob Zolloween's? That's a weird combo. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Rob Zombie's Halloween 2? All right. So, if this movie was as enjoyable as the final 15, 20 minutes are, then maybe I could give it some kind of recommendation to say, okay, this movie is bad, yes, but it is so bad that it's funny. But these are the only these last few scenes are really the only scenes, and I would say from when Sheriff Brackett finds his daughter to the very end is so out there and is so poorly executed that I think it it had a movie been based or had the movie been like this the whole way around, it would have almost been worth it to see in some pa- in some fashion. But it's not. The rest of this movie really is not good, and I've expressed my frustration for most every scene in this movie. It's yeah, I would say it's definitely one of the worst Halloween movies that we've seen so far, which is also kind of saying a lot because we have had to deal with Halloween Resurrection and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. We'll get to that part where my ranking, where it stands in my rankings. But no, this is a really bad movie, and it seems that nobody really seems to care for it. And the only way you can find this movie is with the unrated cut. That being said, Rob Zombie, I don't think I'd ever watch a movie from him again. I've found that his style is uh, odd and taboo, to say the least, which is, I mean, fine. But at the same time, it really elicits a more empty movie than anything else. (sighs) So with Halloween, with this movie, uh, 1 out of 10, not recommend. Uh, No, this is really bad. Easily one of the worst Halloween movies that that we've seen so far. Once again, that says quite a bit. Well, I cannot understand why I ever enjoyed watching this movie. I'm going to be honest, this is probably this is at least the fifth time I've watched this movie actually. Oh my. For some reason, I don't understand why I did for the most part enjoy it. That's why I watched it a few times. This was many years ago. But now coming back with my SSG goggles and my 23-year-old brain I realized there's nothing here. Uh, this movie is emptier than a barrel, save for a small nugget of silver, with how Rob Zombie humanized Annie's death and made it very effective for me. I think Rob thinks he's doing something unique with this Myers curse that makes them demented, but this isn't new. We already have this idea in the end of Halloween 4, where Jamie becomes evil, and then in Halloween 5, when her and Michael share a psychic connection, like Lori and Michael have, some connection in this one. Over-the-top usage of the F-word, ridiculous gratuitous score and nudity, 
This movie is completely bankrupt. It's not the worst in the series, but it's at the bottom. I'm giving Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 two stars out of 10 with a strong, strong net recommend. So as you can... Well, should we do rankings? Yeah, let's do rankings. Um, uh, I'll go ahead and give mine real quick. So okay. uh, this will change once I see the new movie. But as of right now, with the retrospective rankings, uh, Halloween, the 1978 original is my number one. Halloween H2O, number two. Halloween 2, the 1981 version. Halloween 4 is my number 4. That's funny. Halloween 3, then Halloween 5, Halloween Resurrection, Halloween 2, the 2009 version, Halloween The Curse of Michael Myers theatrical cut. Now, I put the producer's cut uh, directly below Halloween 4, so that changes the rankings a bit. And then for my one at the very bottom, uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2007 version all right so for me uh i have halloween 1978 i think this top of ours is number one number two is halloween two number three is h2o number four is six with the producer's cut number five is five number six is four number seven is rob zombies 2007 halloween number eight is halloween resurrection number nine is the one we just watched halloween two technically the Theatrical cut of Halloween 6 would be right underneath Halloween 2. And then, of course, at the very bottom is Halloween 3. Curse, uh, what is it? Season of the Witch? Yeah, that's the one. That's my rank. That's my ranking. Gotcha. Ours are, they start off the same and then they become very different. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah. Well, we're... And to be fair, between Rob Zombies and H2, they could go really in, your, in either order. Or I guess in any order because they're all roughly the same to me. I would say that 2 has a bit more weight in terms of badness. 2 and Resurrection have a bit more weight in terms of badness than Halloween, the Rob Zombie remake. But they're all relatively close. Sure. Yeah, regardless, uh, once we hit 5, once we're done with my top 4, once we start on number 5, then they're all bad. I would even say after H2O, which even... Well, okay, I guess after 4... Producers cut, which even then, the Halloween H, even then Halloween two H two O and that movie number six, the the uh, producers cut, they're only kind of mediocre. After that, below that, I wouldn't consider any of these to be good. I do believe Halloween four, the return of Michael Myers, is still mediocre. I gave it a six out of ten, which is still a recommend. I still think it's watchable, uh, but then after that, I would say. The ones that I listed, none of those are watchable. I wouldn't return to any of those, personally. Right, right. Makes sense. But the Weinsteins Company, they and Dimension and the Akkads, they wanted to return to the world of Rob Zombie. And as Zombie said, he said, okay, you can continue my world. I don't own any rights to this whatsoever. I'm just not going to be a part of it. I... The story is done. This is my definitive duology. Do with it what you will. So, and I did follow this quite closely when the time came out. So I did remember quite a bit of what I'm about to tell you. So right after this film, Halloween 3 was slated to come out the following year. 
they were going to move on it pretty quickly, but that turned out to not be the case. It was going to be in 3D, it was going to be called Halloween 3D, and I guess people were kind of intrigued because this is the first time we've ever got a Halloween 3 starring Michael Myers. To this day, we've still not got such a movie. Right. Uh, Tyler Maine said he would return to play Michael Myers. Scout Taylor Compton said she most likely wouldn't return as Laurie Strode. And the director that was in negotiations was Patrick Lussier, who uh, had done My Bloody Valentine 3D, which came out the same year as this movie. And uh, he also was... um, I think he was going to try and simultaneously develop a Hellraiser reboot, uh, which that failed as well. And uh, so the movie was supposedly going to go back to the Carpenter roots, which is what they all say. Right. Um, And then production stalled. And I remember hearing nothing about it for a long time. Like nothing was happening. They couldn't figure anything out. I heard reports the Weinsteins ran out of money to even fund this type of movie Hmm. and no progress was made. So it was canceled altogether. And I remember I was kind of disappointed because, you know, at the time I loved Halloween and I still love some of the movies, mostly the first one. Right. And, uh, but at the time, you know, I was all about it and really intrigued by it. And I was disappointed because I remember, well, it had probably been about two years, and they kept pushing back the release date. They kept saying, oh, you know, they're just really struggling to even f- figure out how to make a movie. And so that one was completely scrapped. So jump to 2014, and between 2014 and 2016, rumblings began of a new Halloween movie. Uh, Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan, who the latter of the two would be directing the movie, they wrote Saw 4 through 7. They were tapped to do a sequel to Halloween, the 1981 Halloween 2. And it was going to be called Halloween Returns. And from what I understand, uh, it would involve a group of teenagers who are somehow connected to Michael Myers. Uh, one of the kids is the son of a sheriff who was uh, just a police officer in Halloween 2. And the other kid, I don't remember how he was connected, but they're connected somehow. And Michael Myers has been on death row for a long time between Halloween 2 and this one. And uh, the the incident goes awry and uh, Michael breaks loose within this prison and they essentially have to escape from him. That was the plot that was given. Uh, these people were contracted to write, direct, and... Um, It was going to be released in 2016. I remember the ball was really getting rolling. And it had even actually gone into production. So they had even started preliminary casting, at least looking at people to uh, come in on it. But I remember it got canceled because the Weinstein Company lost the rights to it. Huh. Yeah, they actually, the rights expired, and I guess they decided it wouldn't be profitable to keep it going, because trying to get a movie had just um, essentially gone into limbo, or gone out of even their memory, or even caring, and they had a few failed attempts. So they said, you know what, forget it, Uh, they let it go, and 
it seemed we would not be getting a Halloween sequel for quite a while. And it only took two years, though, for uh, this to go into production fairly quickly uh, after this was canceled, at least. Uh, Blumhouse Productions picked it up. They brought John Carpenter back on to produce for the very first time since, well, technically Halloween 3, but as far as Michael Meyer goes, Halloween 2, Carpenter had really no involvement. And so, yeah, it was really exciting, and that's how we're getting the new movie, which uh, critically, I hear the critics are pretty positive on it. The trailers have been great. And I'm really hoping this is the best sequel we've ever gotten to the original. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I really do want to know. I'm really curious to see what this next one is going to be like. This new, technically, sequel to Halloween. Um, we have to... Is this, now this, I'm excited because this is the last movie we have to do for Halloween before the new one comes out. So hopefully we've made it through all the mediocrity and terribleness that Halloween has to offer. And we can get back into something good. Hopefully. Yes, I do hope so as well. Thank you, listeners, for kind of slogging through a few of these poorer entries. But you know what? I always enjoy listening to people talk about bad movies because I think it's just kind of fun to dump on these movies sometimes. Yep. Uh, But we always try to bring uh, a critical response to it, not just trash on it for fun, but actually give you substantial reasons why it doesn't work or why it does work. Uh, so it's been quite the journey of, well, since we didn't do, well, I guess since we're doing the next one, yeah, it'll have been a 10 month retrospective series with a new movie reviewed each month. So we started this at the beginning of the year in January and next month is October, the 10th month, the final installment for now. We'll see if there is a sequel to this movie. We'll be coming back for that. But thank you, listeners, for joining on joining us on this Halloween retrospective. I'm interested to know, and so is Alan, what your ranking is for these movies. Post your ranking in the comment section below. Also, uh, share and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That really helps us be seen. And if you want some extra exclusive bonus content just for you know less than the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, head on over to our Patreon page. The link is... Uh, big and bold and blue right in the description below so it's fairly easy for you to see and click on and there's also some other subscription options below to social media and whatnot just uh, making that ease of access for you there so we appreciate that and we appreciate you sharing Uh, we have listeners from all around the world and we appreciate all of you for uh, enjoying silver screen guide but we're looking to take it to the next level and we do that by just bringing more people in on it. We love to uh, talk about movies and we love talking about them with you. And uh, this has been a great year so far. It's not over yet. We've got some more classic reviews coming to you. We are going to do the uh, Damien Chazelle. We are, uh, if if it's not out by now, it'll be out pretty soon. I think it should be out by now. By the time Halloween 10 is released, uh, just a few days after that will be Guy and Madeline on a park bench to begin the retrospective, which is really only three weeks long. But yeah, only a few days because this comes out, I think, on Wednesday. And then on the Monday following that is when Guy and Madeline comes out. So there you have it, listeners. You've got a lot to look forward to 
from movies from a variety of genres, some new, some old. We're really looking forward to bringing you those reviews very soon. Make sure to subscribe to the website, which you can do through social media or email if you go directly to the website at silverscreenguide.wordpress.com. And that way you can keep up to date with all of the reviews. Um, I know Alan posts some reviews on there, some analysis or in-depth on thoughts, even some video game reviews sometimes. I've been providing, writing reviews like crazy, and I've been posting those. I've got a whole slew of them to post up very soon. By the time of by the time you hear this, they will all be up for you to read of new movies and some classics as well. With a bit of a unique take, I don't think you're going to hear anywhere else. I Some movies that people love, I have not loved, and I have given you reasons why. So go ahead and read those reviews, and I think you'll be... Uh, intrigued to hear those differing thoughts on those so once again listeners thank you so much for joining us on our halloween 2 review and we'll catch you next time